Welcome to MedTech Talk, a weekly sit-down with the innovators, investors, and executives leading the MedTech sector. Now, here's your host, Tom Salemi. Hi, everyone. This is Tom Salemi. I'm the host of MedTech Talk. Thanks for joining us. Uh, one of our guests uh, at um, the MedTech Investing Conference in May was Scott Atifelis. Uh, Scott's the CEO of Oxford Performance Materials. Uh, Oxford is a materials and additive manufacturing company or uh, a 3D printing company that uh, entered the orthopedics world uh, last year with uh, a few uh, 510k approvals of cranial and facial uh, implants that are uh, printed uh, specifically for patients who have suffered trauma uh, to their skull or their face and require uh, replacements. Um, this is a, an area, of course, uh, that is uh, easy to easier than many to get into, at least in a regulatory perspective. But, uh, but it introduced uh, or at least conveyed the, the real uh, possibilities of 3D printing. Uh, we, we've seen patient-specific products uh, in things like orthopedics uh, with companies like Conformis and, of course, the, the patient-specific uh, customized uh, uh, movement has moved throughout the, uh, the large joint uh, area. Uh, giving real credence to the notion of having implants made specifically for the patients that need them. Uh, and this 3D printing, of course, is a natural fit or a natural engine of that movement. And, uh, and it's an exciting area to see. And we were happy to have him at the conference. And I'm equally happy to have him today on the podcast to talk about the, uh, the potential of 3D printing, what it actually means and what it actually could be, and also to address the challenges of, uh, of managing a 3D printing company uh, that's moving into medtech, which is obviously a, a difficult sector to uh, to uh, succeed in, especially uh, given that uh, Oxford also uh, works in the aviation field and other fields that don't have an FDA uh, staring down at them when they come with new products. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Scott DeFelice of Oxford Performance Materials. Okay, Scott DeFelice, welcome to the podcast. Well, a pleasure to be here, Tom. Scott, can you take a few minutes uh, to share the, the history of Oxford Performance Materials? Uh, how did a company that has a significant business in the aeronautics field find its way uh, into medical devices? And why, given all the challenges facing medtech, would you even find uh, this market appealing? Oxford Performance Materials was founded in 2000. Uh, a fairly simple premise of the company is to exploit a extremely high performance and enabling material set based upon a polymer called PEK or PEKK, and so we, you know, we saw this molecule was going to was going to become available as a result of others just letting it go, and we came to the conclusion that it was enabling in a number of areas and. Um, biomedical was one of them, aerospace is another, semiconductors another. So as a, as a company, Oxford Performance Materials has a broad set of activities in different verticals, but really from the onset, um, the biomedical vertical is, is one where we've, where we've focused on. Um, you know, we, we made that decision because the, the molecule itself 
has a set of attributes that are very desirable for the orthopedic and other medical uh, implant applications. Now, it's, it's mechanically like bone. It's radiolucent. You can sterilize it by any method. Uh, it's osteoconductive, mean, meaning bone can actually grow onto it. Uh, and, you know, more recently, actually starting in 2006, we, we, we started pursuing 3D printing with this, this material. And so now all those other attributes are married to the fact that we could very economically put it in any shape we like. And that, that has a tremendous amount of virtue. And what were some of the, uh, give, give us a rundown of the, of the implants that you've had approved and, and what those processes have been like. They've both been approved through 510K notification, correct? So, um, yeah. Yeah. So we have two 510Ks. We have a 510K cleared for cranial prosthesis or our osteofab patient specific cranial device. And we also have uh, a clearance for facial uh, devices. Um, and so we can reconstruct. Uh, parts of people's uh, anatomy uh, with the material that is mechanically and biocompatibly uh, appropriate uh, for those reconstructions. So those those are cleared, and um, those go through distribution through Biomet, soon to be Zimmer. So we're you know we're enjoying global uh, sales on those and have clearances. You know the FDA is obviously a big clearance, but CE is cleared and. You know, Invisa, Kofapreece, KFDA, so and uh, we're filing now in Japan. So, you know, these are these are products with global uh, breadth that um, you know are finding their place because of the combination of a really enabling material and uh, a really enabling process. And these are customized implants, right? Patient uh, patient specific. Yeah, everything's custom. So we, uh, you know, we get a, a CT um, and then design an implant to fit into a defect and print that imp- implant and inspect that implant. And that's ultimately we goes out through, uh, through the distribution directly to the hospitals where it is sterilized at the hospital and implanted. And where do you go from here? What, what's, what future lines do you see uh, Oxford uh, creating for, uh, for MedTech? Well, actually, let me answer the second half of your question, which which, which I neglected to do in your, in your previous question, which was you know the regulatory piece of that. Mm-hmm. And you know, so there's there's a lot of emphasis, uh, you know, in 3D, you know, additive manufacturing is really uh, you know the term we tend to use here. Um, there's a lot of emphasis on process and you know how one additively manufactures devices. Um, but, you know, we, we, we absolutely come at it from the point of view of the material science first uh, because, it, you know, the fact that you can make a shape, it has to be in the material that's appropriate. So, we, so our whole thinking on the matter really starts with the material. Um, so from, from a regulatory point of view, this means, you know, we already had a long history of clearances and acceptance uh, of our material set in spine and other orthopedic applications uh, going back uh, to 2006, uh, so an FDA master file and all the biocompatibility and purity data and all the process validations, which is the big quality piece that has to be in place, um, the the CGMP piece with ha- which has to be in place. Uh, so when you have all that already in place, and now you say, okay, now we're going to now you're going to a notified body or the FDA and say, look, that's all in place and it's been all uh, cleared in various ways. 
Uh, and now we're just adding a manufacturing process on top of that. Um, and so that's, that's the, the strategy we've taken and that's, I believe, why we've been effective. And I think you can contrast that potentially to the alternative strategy of coming from the process side and say, saying, look, we've got a process and now we're going to um, go get an approval but don't have the rest of those experiences and competencies in place. And I think that's probably a bit more of a, uh, a bit more of a challenging path. So in, in terms of uh, where we go though today, so we, we sort of started out in the places where the technology has uh, extreme usefulness. So, you know, you've got a large structural defect in your skull, in your skull and, you know, you want to get that replaced in an anatomically appropriate way with, with a material that's mechanically appropriate. Um, that's um, a perfect use for the material and the process that we have, you know, the product that we call osteofab. Uh, and so we started there, and, and, and frankly, those were also non-load bearing, right, from the, from the regulatory point of view, from the FDA's point of view. So again, start somewhere where there's great value and a great platform to develop off of historically and, you know, not a load bearing indication. So that, that's where we started. But you know, clearly we have very substantial data that supports usefulness and load-bearing uh, applications. And so now we are moving into spine. Um, and we have a device right now under review at the FDA, a VBR um, for corpectomy indications. And that is, uh, would be our first load-bearing 3D-printed PEC uh, device that, that's in the market. And from there, you know, we're... There's lots of interesting places. You know, we we love uh, large bony defects. Uh, that's the sort of core to us. And so oncology indications, trauma indications are, are really interesting. But we also see no reason why we can't uh, enjoy uh, business in uh, joint applications, knee, shoulder. Uh, and ultimately, we, we can see a play at major joint hip indications. So, you know, the platform has a lot of breadth. Uh, it, it touches a great deal of the orthopedic industry, and we're just systematically moving down the body uh, to exploit the uh, technology platform. And you're designing these implants yourself, or are you working with partners who look to you to do the manufacturing? Uh, so we are the designer of the implant, and we do all the regulatory. We look for partners to distribute um, you know, so we, what we really do is we're a really good manufacturing company. We're a really good technology company. Um, you know, we that that's our, we're a really good regulatory company. That's our core science and technology. Um, you know, we prefer others to uh, to take the products into distribution. They know they have very uh, useful role to us. They have great uh, uh, product synergies. They've got established distribution. They've got logistics. So all important and necessary. Uh, so we think we do our role and our partners do their role, and it's just a win-win. You've got a, a large presence in other industries like aviation. How, how different is MedTech creating a product uh, for uh, medical use? How different is that than other industries? Uh, so actually, anyone who buys PEC, I mean, if you're, if you're buying PEC, it's because it's a critical application. It's a, you know, in the world of, hyper, in the world of polymers, you know, you have your materials that go into the soda bottles and you have your materials that go under the hood of your car. And then right at the top of the polymer food chain, you have the materials that go in 
critical high performance applications. So, uh, you know, whether you're handling a semiconductor or um, um, you have a component that's in a, a downhole application or an aerospace structure or a satellite structure, which is where we're very active, all of them are critical. All of them require the same diligence and extreme attention to detail. Uh, quality management systems are extremely robust. Uh, regulatory, uh, you know, everything we do is regulated by the FAA or the FDA or somebody somewhere. Uh, so it's all very highly regulated. So in terms of, uh, you know, the, the, the core manufacturing similarities and, uh, and extreme attention to uh, quality and regulatory, it's actually, they're all very similar. They all want you to lock down processes and, and control things. And so uh, all, all, all very similar. Where we start to get different in our businesses is really more in the front end and how one goes to market. So, you know, in aerospace, you may sell to 10 companies, uh, and that's the global market um, for some product spaces. And in biomedical, it's, you know, it's, it's a completely different uh, front end, completely different uh, distribution. What sort of uh, protection do you have, IP protection, for your devices? I suppose my question is, what... What's to stop? And I know Stryker's already doing some 3D printing. Uh, other larger established medtech companies sort of from moving into the, the 3D printing process and perhaps uh, creating products that uh, compete with yours, and then they already have that, that presence in the market that might give them a leg up. Yeah, so, so we're 3D printing with a specific material pack where we have uh, composition processing and application IP all wrapped around it. Uh, so we think we're in a, we have quite a proprietary technology position. Uh, folks are, go, are going to 3D print with titanium and other things, and you know we're very comfortable with that competition between PEC and titanium. There will be things that titanium is the right answer for. Uh, there will be things that uh, PEC is the right answer for. Uh, we think that PEC is the right answer for lots and lots of things as a result of the right mechanical performance, the right osteoconductivity, uh, the right economics. Uh, we, we, we hang our hat on more clinical efficacy for less money. And we, you know, um, based on the indications that we're pursuing, we think we've got a tremendous amount of market space. And we're very happy to see others bring titanium and other metals into, the, into uh, those other indications because it just creates more comfort that, you know, the process of additive manufacturing can be uh, effectively deployed uh, and that's good for everybody. So the real uh, difference maker for you is is the material and, and not the process. The three D printing process is, is just the way you get it done. But the selling point you feel is the material. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. In fact, in 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 additive manufacturing, it's all about the material, right? It doesn't make a difference if you could uh, uh, print a nice plastic apple. You have to be able to eat, right? So it has to be made of the right material and. Same thing with the implants. You know, because you can run a process uh, doesn't mean that, you, you know, you, it all starts with having the right material that's appropriate for use. And the process is merely the enabling technology to get it into form. So how far, how far away are we from having 3D printing, the term 3D printing, perhaps just going away and just having this be part of another manufacturing process? I assume that that is the direction we're going, that 10 years from now, this is going to be something that's uh, hardly creating any level of buzz like it is today. 
Um, it's the real, the real enabling um, is a, I, I don't want to understate the value of having uh, an enabling technology like this being deployed. Um, and it will go from being a buzz thing to being an everyday, heavily used manufacturing tool that one uses to um, create devices. Uh, you know, I, 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 I clearly see that, that day coming, and, and that, that's, that's actually success, right? That, that's where you want to get to. So, you know, you don't want to be, you know, think, it, it, you know, it's kind of, we look at it in the similar to, you know, the way the internet came around. It was like, you know, originally pets.com was a great idea. Mm -hmm. you know, people thought that was brilliant. Uh, but it didn't last, but Google did, right? And now it's just, Google's just part of everything you do all the time, right? You, you can hardly get a minute without interfacing somehow with that technology. Um, and so additive manufacturing will will sort of get get its major, I think a major piece in the uh, processing technology of all sorts of industries, whether it's a biomedical implant or the way you make parts for a semiconductor processor, the way you make planes, uh, you know, in our, in our aerospace business, uh, you know, we're just experiencing enormous growth, uh, dramatic, uh, transformative, really substantial. So <laughs> we know it's there, and we know when we're doing it. And I, I think the same thing will happen in um, uh, in biomedical. Uh, but you have to be sensitive to you know how long material paradigms take to blossom in these types of highly regulated industries and how how long they ultimately last once uh, once in place and the answer is to them you know long to blossom uh, but stays in that state for a very long time as well we hear reports of of uh, organs of course being printed or or ears and other sort of soft tissue uh, materials is that an area that is perhaps much farther away uh, from being practically used. I mean, you can see the, the practicality of an orthopedic implant, and I know it's used, the, these types of implants are used, I think, more and more in orthopedics. But how long is the road to get uh, 3D printed products into uh, implantable, not only implantable devices, but replacement organs? Well, so the device side is a now thing, right? Uh, I mean, we're doing it every day. We're printing implants that go on the body. So that's happening now. It's starting in, I would say, like where we're starting is the, the more um, um, less demanding, more niche markets of, you know, CMF is that type of cranial, maxillofacial market is that type of market. But moving into the mainstream markets now, I think that's a, that's a 20, from the next 24 months. So certainly from us, we'll see. You know, I'm confident we'll be in spine within 24 months. Um, and so we're actually already in spine in Europe, 3D printing spinal, custom spinal cages in, in Europe. Um, so it's that that's really coming. Uh, in terms of um, the major joints, um, you know, the, the, the large volume indications, I, I you know, I kind of put that in the more four to seven years, you know, that to really, you know, products within two to three years, but four to seven years to, to substantial adoption. And then I would put, you know, we're going to print livers and we're going to do that. You know, there's, there's two buckets of that. There's let's build tissues that are used for clinical, I mean, non-clinical use, just, um, you know, experimentation and testing of, of drugs. Uh, you know, I, I think to some degree that could happen, you know, relatively soon, you know, three to five years. 
But I think this idea of, you know, we're going to print tissues that go in the human body uh, is very long-term uh, thing. I mean, I think it's 10, 15, 20. I mean, that, that, that one to me is out there, just the, the clinical work one would have to do to, to get through that. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't even know how you design those studies. That's, you know, the, the, those, that's very, very challenging in my opinion. Finally, what are, what are the unique challenges to, to leading a company like yours? Uh, you know, you're operating in the med tech space. I don't know if you're drawing interest from med tech investors who may want to bet on a, a, a horse that's sort of uh, leading in this area right now, or if it's something that just so uh, that isn't quite uh, doesn't quite fit into their portfolio criteria. Criteria. What are the challenges of leading this company and? And are you interacting with investors and other executives uh, in the space and sort of finding a home for, for Oxford? Yeah, so traditional investors in med tech have been, you know, heavily sort of, there's been a lot of me too. Um, you know, so, in, you know, in the ortho and spine, we're, you know, where we, we see our near, near-term uh, plays. Uh, there, there's a lot of companies that have been funded by VCs that are really, you know, they take this strategy. There's a lot out there of no regulatory risk and no innovation risk and, uh, you know, build a business and then, uh, you know, hire some smart sales guys, scale and exit. I think that's been a fairly effective model, uh, maybe starting in 2008, nine less effective. And I think today, given healthcare reform, even increasingly less effective. So the money has had a, has had an orientation that I think, um, you know, is now needing to evolve a bit, and uh, but investing in, in innovation, and I think that's what we're doing here, uh, requires a extremely high um, uh, performance threshold. So the you have to demonstrate the technical risk is gone. You have to demonstrate the regulatory risk is gone. You have to demonstrate the market risk is isn't there. So kind of that, and that's where we are as OPM. We've done all that, and so by the time you get all through all that, you're really not in a discussion with a group of VC syndicate. You're really more in a strategic discussion uh, with with partners who can help exploit technology platforms, and that tends to be more of our interest area. So going forward, do you see Oxford bootstrapping it with growing on your own revenue, or do you anticipate the need for an investor perhaps from a corporate or maybe a growth equity type investor? Yeah, we're more, we're, you know, we do also recognize that we can't bootstrap it beyond, you know, we can bootstrap a lot of technology development and product approvals, uh, but uh, to go out and bootstrap, you know, global distribution um, and adjacencies is, is, is a bit of a challenge. I mean, that would be a lot of, uh, a lot of effort and then it would take a long time. So, you know, we're probably more interested in strategic discussions where folks want to use, use our platform and, and help exploit it out into the marketplace. Excellent. Well, it's a fascinating company and a, and a equally fascinating space. I appreciate you taking a few minutes to uh, talk to us about it. You know, my pleasure, Tom. Thanks, Scott Felice, for joining us and for giving us that glimpse into the exciting 3D printing world. Uh, it's going to be something to watch and to behold over the next uh, decade or so. Very, very exciting technology. And thank you, of course, for joining us. Uh, if you have some thoughts or insights on uh, on this podcast or would like to participate, feel free to uh, email me at tom at healthagy.com. That's the word, health followed by E-G-Y. 
or you can uh, find me at Twitter or at, at MedTechTom. So thanks again for listening and join us next time for an exciting uh, insight on MedTech innovation.